and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys here. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and dive in here. So glad you could join us for today. Let me just add uh, my voice to Pastor Hunter's, and that is... Uh, what an incredible week we have coming up here. Uh, this Friday, our Good Friday service, we have two this year, uh, just to fit everybody in. Uh, there at 5 and 7 p.m., I think, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate communion Friday night and remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, hear me. If you've never been to a Bent Tree Good Friday service, uh, it's a somber occasion. I know that sounds funny, uh, but but like wear dark colors, wear black, like you go to a funeral. Uh, it'll be, uh, keep a hushed tone when you come in. It'll be subdued. Instead of visiting and talking to your neighbors, just remain quiet. We'll, we'll ask everyone just to kind of keep that hushed tone. It's a very different worship service. The worship will reflect that too. And we'll, we'll preach on the sacrifice and suffering of the cross and the love Jesus demonstrates towards us in that cross. Is that cool? Okay. We'll talk about how he took our sin on his back and bore our shame and gave us his righteousness. Now, if you've never been to a Good Friday service, it's powerful. It's a different type of worship service for sure, but one I hear from people over and over. It's one of their favorites of the entire year. Uh, then on Sunday morning, it's a different gig, man. It's a celebration uh, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Amen? Uh, come and wear bright cl- colors, and I'm going to wear my Easter clothes. In fact, I'm wearing them now. No, that, you, you come, and, and ladies, you dress really nice. Guys, I don't know if you could ever dress nice. So some of you dress nice, but um, you guys come dressed up, wear your Easter stuff. We'll have three Sunday morning services for Easter, 8.30, 10, 11.30. Make sure you invite family and friends. Uh, let's pack this place out. Non-Christians will come to church on that day. And I'll, I'm just going to preach the gospel. They'll love it. I'll be preaching on the meaning of the resurrection. And specifically what the resurrection of Jesus means for our immediate future. And for Bent Tree folks, if you can, go ahead and register online on that website. You can use your little phone on the QR code there on the chair in front of you. And you can get there um, by just going to that btc.churchcenter.com too. If you can do that, it helps us out. Well, enough housekeeping stuff. I'm telling you, this week though is going to be powerful. Be praying, expecting a miracle. You guys be praying for God to move this week in our own hearts, in your heart, in my heart as I preach, as our team, as they lead us. Well, let's get going. Who's got their Bibles? Let's see those things. Hold them up for me. Let's see them. Oh, I love that. You know, when I first started doing it, there would be like two. And like people are bringing their Bible. If you don't have one, uh, we've got some paperback ones in the back. And that can be a gift uh, to you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, and it's the same one that I'll be preaching out of, the ESV. Well, we've been hanging out studying here in the Gospel of John chapter 6 for a while now. And specifically the last few weeks on John 6.37. And its implications of what Jesus is teaching this big crowd that has followed him 
to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum. And remember up to this point, verse 37, this giant crowd uh, wanted him to give them more bread like he had done the night before when he had fed the 20, 25,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. And he says to them, you're just following me so you can get what I give you. And, and Jesus says, don't don't work for food that perishes, but for the real food that endures for eternal life, which only the Son of Man will give you. Now, he's referring to himself, but the crowd, they don't get it. He says, you must believe in me, the one God the Father has sent. He's telling them that he is the true bread that comes from heaven, who comes down and gives life to the world. This starts the conversation we've been having here with Jesus in verse 35 where he says, I am the bread of life. Now literally he is claiming to be divine right here. By using the covenant name Yahweh, I am. But then look in verse 36, Jesus said, you've seen all this. He's talking to these people and yet you don't believe. You've seen the miracle, you don't believe. And here's where we spent the last few weeks together. Jesus just gives them this profound statement. He says here in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus has been teaching us the doctrines of grace or the shorthand way of saying this is the dogs, the doctrines of grace from the very beginning of John. However, it's right here in John chapter 6 that Jesus begins to teach us even more explicitly the doctrines of grace. He wants to make it plain where salvation comes from. What Jesus is teaching here is how some people are saved from their sin, saved from the wrath of God. He points out that God the Father gives certain people to the Son, Jesus, and on top of that, all the ones that the Father does give to the Son, Jesus makes this astounding claim, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. So far we've seen Jesus begin to unpack, to describe this radical corruption of our nature due to original sin resulting in our total inability to to save ourselves, right? The sovereign election of God choosing to save us and giving us to the Son. We've looked at the irresistible call of God through the Spirit that resurrects us from a spiritual death to a spiritual life in the Son. And last week we looked at that beautiful thing of preserving grace, didn't we? That he promises to keep us safe all the way till we're home. We begin to look at these things that we call these doctrines of grace. Now, we're not done with all that. We'll see them more as Jesus begins to unpack them as he preaches through the rest of the gospel of John. But I want you to see them so when we come across them, you'll hear Jesus teach a ton more about these. And then how do we live our lives based on this? But now, now. You're going to be surprised we're moving on from verse 37. Some people have said, Paul, when are you getting off of verse 37? Like, this is like ridiculous. And others are going, man, God has just poured out uh, in verse 37. But now let's look at verse 38. Let's look at what Jesus says together. Jesus tells them, for I have come down from heaven. I think it's pretty explicit there. 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this is what Jesus has just been describing to us, isn't it? Why he came. And that is to do what? The will of the Father, God the Father, that should strike a chord within us. As, as in, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from thee. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will. Remember that? This is at the very heart of the reason Jesus, the Son of God, takes on human flesh. We call that the incarnation. God becomes man. One of the names Jesus has given is the God-man. Because he takes on the flesh of a man, Jesus is now truly God and yet truly man. Two Two natures together. He doesn't lose any of his God nature. He is still truly God the Son. And yet he takes on human nature. He's still truly man too. And although, uh, and through the incarnation, Jesus will carry out the will of the Father. How? Well, think about this. Without Jesus coming and taking on the flesh of mankind, Jesus as God only, if he had not taken on that flesh, would not have been able to carry out the will of the Father. You say, well, what is the will of the Father? Well, Jesus tells us in 39. Thanks for asking. Here it is. And this is the will of him who sent me. So he's going to lay it out for us. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Just what we've been talking about. That he will lose none of all that God the Father has given him. And he will raise them up on the last day. We'll get to that last line in more depth soon. But let's look at Jesus, what Jesus is saying so far. Why did Jesus take on the flesh of man? To accomplish God the Father's Will, why did Jesus have to take on flesh? Well, think through this with me. So that he could take our place. What do we mean by that? Well, if, I, if we're sinful, if we're cut off from God because of our sin, spiritually dead, as the Apostle Paul describes us in Ephesians 1 and 2, if we're spiritually dead before we become a Christian, if we're guilty, each one of us is guilty of sin, Right? So what do we mean by Jesus taking our place? So he could take our sins on his back as a substitute. So he could become our representative before God. Now if the very first man, Adam, sinned, and he did, and if we are all Adam's descendants, and we are, we are born into this sin-fallen world, we are born cut off from God spiritually. Physically, we are born alive, but spiritually, we are dead, separated from God. So Jesus, as this God-man, comes to earth as the, look, second Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. You with me? He will live this perfect life, righteous life, the one that you and I could not live in our fallen state. Why? Because we're sinful. We sin. In his earthly life, Jesus as this God-man, Jesus will fulfill every prophecy about him made in the Hebrew 
scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. He will be falsely accused, be tortured, suffer greatly on a Roman cross, but then Jesus, after he dies, will be raised to life on the third day, conquering sin and death. Somebody say amen. Because of all that, now Jesus can carry out the the purpose God has sent him for. Jesus will be able to save all those that the Father has given him. Every single one of them. And not just save them, not just make salvation possible. Hear me, hear me. He will make it secure for those that believe, that come to him, that the Father has given to him. That's what this is saying. Now in verse 37, you go, Paul, we hit verse 37. All right, we hit verse 37. What we learn, that Jesus will perfectly preserve all the people that God the Father has given to him to the very end, till we're in heaven. At the very heart of what Jesus is saying is seen in Jesus' response to this giant crowd so far. This is deep. So give this some thought. If we sum up what Jesus has said so far to this crowd, think about it, here's what we get. There exists a group of people who have been given by God the Father to Jesus the Son. We can all agree agree on that. And that this group of people will inevitably come to the Son to be made alive in the Spirit, or what Jesus called being born again or born from above, we saw in chapter 3. And then these people given by the Father and have come to the Son will be preserved by Jesus to the end. Spoiler alert, we'll see this theme of John in verse 65 of John 6, chapter 10, chapter 17. It's really the entire purpose of the entire gospel of John. To show who Jesus really is as the Son of God. The one who comes at the direction of God the Father to save the people of God Those that God has given to the Son. And the Apostle John is not embarrassed by this at all. John just makes it plain just for for us. Now I've got to tell you, there are tons of contemporary theologians and pastors that do not think that mankind is off the hook for salvation. They would say, sure, Jesus does all that, but that mankind must do something to be saved before him. Otherwise, they would say it's determinism. Like we're a robot, like it's all predetermined by God, and yet we know that we must, we must do and choose to come to Jesus with the help of God the Holy Spirit. But that's not all what Jesus, by the Apostle John, is teaching us here. Let me introduce you to a concept and a word here. The Apostle John holds the position that modern philosophy calls compatibilism compatibilism. In other words, what seems like two things that can't go together are in fact going together. The popular but unbiblical concept of free will assumes that it is one and only necessary condition for moral responsibility. Spoiler alert, our regenerate will is not as free as we think it is. But then what we have learned is that We are first called to life spiritually, born again by the work of the Son at the direction of the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's what we've just spent about the last eight weeks on. People who disagree with this simply call this 
Second thing, determinism. That God just determines who will be saved and who won't be saved. And while it's true that God is the one doing the choosing and that Jesus is the one carrying out the Father's will and the Spirit is bringing life to us, that's all true, we actually think both are true. God chooses us and we must come to Jesus. You hear me? That's what Jesus is saying to us here in chapter 6. God's sovereignty is true and at the very same time, man's responsibility to come to Jesus is also true. Two parallel truths that that some say can't go together, and yet Jesus says clearly they do. So God sovereignly chooses, and, and, and man is responsible to believe. Now, if you've been here very long, you've heard me use this analogy before, but it's helpful. The two railroad tracks going off into the distance. They never meet, at least we don't think they do out there. Both are true. Both are true. Parallel truths. God is sovereign, one rail, and we are responsible. Even though we don't see how the two fit together, they do. I don't think on this side of heaven we will ever understand how those two things work together. But we trust that because Jesus said it was true, it is true. So with that, we have said, all that we've said so far, let's look at verse 39 again. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all those he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now remember, this is the will of God the Father, Jesus says, that he, Jesus, will lose nothing of all the Father has given him. What a comfort that is. That my salvation doesn't rest on my ability to keep myself saved, but that Jesus will hold me fast. Now, is this saying that everyone ever created will be saved no matter what? No, that's universalism, isn't it? We don't think that. Who are the ones that are not saved? And why are they not saved? Well, let's look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is still describing the will of the Father, isn't he? Notice he's not saying the same thing again that he said in verse 39. Jesus is describing something more here. Get this, because what Jesus is showing us are these two parallel truths that we just talked about. Think the railroad tracks. He said, this is the will of God. One that everyone who looks on the sun, think through this with me. What does Jesus mean here when he says looks on the sun? Here's the Greek word thoreau, thoreau. Here's what it means. It means to behold, to examine, to inspect and understand. To look on Jesus. To think about him on the cross. To think about him. To behold him. To examine what he has said. To inspect it. To understand it. This is mankind's responsibility, isn't it? 
Isn't it? Yes. And what is the thing Jesus is saying that everyone that is saved by him has to look at? Well, it, it looks on the Son, Jesus. That is to examine Christ, is to examine who he claims to be and what he has done in his life, his claims to be the Son of God. His miracles, the signs, prove that he, that prove he is God. Examine the prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. His suffering on the cross, his death, and certainly his resurrection from the dead. All of it predicted in the Old Testament. And then his ascension to the Father with the promise to return. All of it, Jesus says, look at it all. Examine it. The short way to say all of that is gospel. The story of God's plan of salvation that all who would believe. He says, look on the Son with understanding. That is the will of the Father. But what else? Let's look at verse 40 once again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Believes in Him. Should have eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal life. So let's put that all together. Shall we? Here's the will of the father. Jesus said. This is the reason Jesus says he's come to earth. And takes on flesh. That all that the father has given him. That's first. Will look on Jesus and believe. That's second. Write this down. The power of the gospel message is that God uses it as the instrument to be regenerated by looking on Jesus and believing in him. The power of the gospel message is that God uses it as the instrument, talking about the gospel, to be regenerated by looking on Jesus and believing in him. Now, this is why it's so critically important as we share the gospel with people, it is the only cure for the sin disease we have. It's the only cure. We examine the claims of the gospel, who Jesus claims to be, then we place our faith, our belief in him. But it is only after the new life, the faith that has been given to us, that we can place that faith in Jesus and believe in him. That word believe there in verse 40. Look at it with me one more time. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks, examines the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if we looked, if we examined the gospel, then we believe, here's what it means in the original Greek. The Greek uh, word here is pistuo, pistuo. Here it is, believe, pistuo, means to place trust in, to be confident about. To place trust in, to be confident about. That's what it means to believe or believes. To 
prove something is firm and then place your whole weight on it. To rely on it. The ultimate proof that you trust a chair to support your whole weight is that you sit down. We put all our eggs in one basket. Huh? That's what it means to believe. Our full weight. In other words, to live your life trusting that what you believe is true. And that is, do you believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord? At the same time, it means to let go of believing that anything else can save you. That we let go of the idea that somehow we could save ourselves by being good enough. Doing more works, good works than bad works. It means that we stop trusting any other thing or person that we've placed our faith in or built our life upon confidently to trust Jesus Christ alone in our life and death. Now here's the thing that we've got to see. The reformers identified three aspects of saving faith. You ready for them? Look at these. Three aspects of saving faith. Number one, a person must know the essential facts of the gospel. A person must know the essential facts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. By the way, that's what I'm preaching on next week. All right, here's the second. That person must intellectually assent to the truth of the facts of the gospel. So you got to know it, one, but then mentally, intellectually assent to the truth of the facts of the gospel. Nothing can be in your heart without first being in your head, in your mind first. Just the way God made us. Now understand, a person can believe the gospel at those first two levels, but still be unregenerate and therefore unsaved. Listen to me. You know how we've been covering reform doctrine over the last eight weeks or so? There's guys that know reform doctrine backwards and forward that don't know Jesus. Doctrine doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. You need to know it. It doesn't save you. So what is the third thing? It takes the spirit of God in regeneration to take the truth of the facts of the gospel from the mind to the heart. We're not talking about your beating muscle, but the core of you. It takes the Spirit of God, third member of the Trinity, in regeneration to take the truth of the facts of the gospel from the mind to the heart. This is what the Reformer said. That's what results in trusting faith in Jesus alone for salvation. So how do we tell the difference between just mental agreement on a concept and actually being born again? Because there's quite a few of you I'm worried in this place right now that have the first two down but don't have the third. You go, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God raised from the dead. 
The answer is if you have gone to number three, is that if we're born again, our lives are different if we follow Jesus. We begin to follow his commands. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commands. When we do, we begin to look more like Jesus in how we live our lives. We treat others differently. We begin to show signs of spiritual growth as we travel up that discipleship pathway or what we sometimes call Spiritual fruit begins to be produced. We begin to have a love for others, an inward peace, a joy in the midst of times of struggle. We begin to have patience with others in our circumstance. Notice I didn't get any amens on that one. That's like, we begin to have this kindness that's not us towards people that we thought were idiots before. We began to try to not sin. We began to try to flee temptation, flee sin. We, we take the apostle Paul's admonition in Galatians 5.24 that says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh with the, their passions and their desires. We will begin to mourn our past sin and begin to see those old sins for what they are, evil And yet, we realize that we have been forgiven of that sin, too. It's certainly, at first, we're not very good at any of this stuff. But at least, we start to see signs of our change. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that that the way we live will save us. What I'm saying is that if we are saved, if we are regenerated, we will follow Jesus. Our lives will begin to be changed. And over time, we will change a lot. We will look like Jesus. Let me say something that I've said before, but just to clear up some misconceptions. We're talking about regeneration. Our spiritual birth of being born again. What John describes Jesus talking about in John 3. To examine the claims of the gospel, we must hear the gospel, right? Yes. But once we see and hear the gospel message, it is God that regenerates us and brings us to life in Christ. But then our response is this. Conversion. Once we have been regenerated, we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus in faith and live our lives based on his word, the Bible. Get this down. Understand this word, conversion. It's different than regeneration. Once we have been regenerated, born again, we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus in faith and live our lives based on his word, the Bible. We believe in Jesus at this point as our Lord and Savior. It's a conscious decision. We decide to do it. A conscious act of a regenerate person in which he or she turns to God in repentance and faith. The part of being born again or being brought to life has already occurred, look, at a subconscious level. In conversion... The newly born again believer acts on the gift of faith God has given them in regeneration. They repent of their sins and believe. In conversion, that new believer is now exercising that repentance. They confess their belief in Christ Jesus. 
regeneration and conversion may seem to happen simultaneously. But understand, they're not the same thing. Regeneration, being born again, is monergistic, meaning it is work, the work of God alone. While conversion is synergistic, it is us working together with the Holy Spirit to grow in the Lord with our new faith. In conversion, we now believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We repent of first not believing in Jesus, and we repent of all of our other sins as well. And we turn over the keys to our life. We say, Jesus, you're my Savior. Would you be my Lord now? You be the boss. In short, we become followers of Jesus. We are baptized. We begin to hold to his teachings. We are his disciples. Here's something that I used to get wrong back in, back in the day. Many moons ago, and a lot of believers, especially new believers, get this one wrong too. So don't feel bad if you get this one wrong. We think that we are saved only once we pray a prayer of salvation. Or when we walk down the aisle and talk to a shepherding elder or a preacher. Or when we raised our hand in the back of a room that was darkened and the pastor says, I see your hand. But listen to me, our salvation happened at the cross. It happened when God made us alive when we were born again. Up to the point of conversion... We are passive in the process. At conversion, we begin to do all the other stuff in active cooperation with the Spirit. Conversion is the beginning then of our sanctification as we move through life. Now, which came first in our salvation? God calls us, we know that. We're regenerated. We hear the gospel, then we respond in repentance, and we believe and follow Jesus. Now, I'm talking about these events like they happen over a long period of time, but usually it's a boom, instantaneous thing. Like the point of when we are made alive by the Holy Spirit and believe and convert and repent of our sin and follow Jesus, boom. Like if I had a little match and I strike a match, what comes first? The heat comes first. The spark comes from that heat and then the flame. I researched that, by the way. (laughs) We can't see it happen, though. It's just a flame. I struck the match. It's a flame. The spark comes from the heat, then the fire, then the flames, and then the fire Engulfs the whole match, doesn't it? Just like the Spirit engulfs our whole life. That process all happens in an instant to our lives. But we know that there is a process because of John 6. That's like salvation. He regenerates us. We repent and believe. We follow him. Does that make sense, by the way? Now, sometimes in the life of a believer, they are regenerated and they begin to change. They convert, they begin to change. They are baptized, they start to follow Jesus, but sometimes it's like they get stuck. I've been stuck several times along the way, along that discipleship pathway. Maybe you believe when you were a kid and you fell into some sin and you haven't followed Jesus teaching for a very long time. Are you lost now? 
Not necessarily, no. But your relationship with God is certainly strained because you're not following what he said to do. If you were saved to begin with, you have not lost your salvation, but certainly you haven't continued to follow Jesus like you should. This is the case with most believers in this room, at least at some level. We get stuck somewhere along that discipleship pathway up those four mountains. But what about those that, that it was just a mental decision that they were saved? Are they saved? And we talked about this a little bit last time, but this is worth revisiting because this is life and death, heaven and hell. Are there false believers? Sure. How do we know if someone is a false believer? We don't. At least not for sure. Clues to that are simply those that fall away from following Jesus. They leave the church. They leave the faith. They fall back into sin. They never believed. Were they saved and then lost their salvation? Not according to scripture. They were never saved at all. The church has, has those people in it for sure. We, we can't always tell who is a genuine Christ follower and who is not a Christ follower or a false Christian. That phrase, false Christian, by the way, is an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like military intelligence, right? In many ways, they look at the same at times. They look the same at times. By the way, remember at the end of this chapter, Jesus will say some of these things that will drive these false followers away. They will leave in the thousands and only a few will be left. I mean, there's 20,000 people here. Only maybe 100 will be left. And even out of those, there will be a few, at least one. We know Judas, who will betray him, who was never saved. Are there false believers right here? I hope not. Let's suspect there are. In the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13, Jesus guarantees there will be false believers. Can, you, can we just know for certain that, there are, that they are lost or saved? No, only God knows that. Only God can see the heart. Or... Or we can say, if they're false believers, can we know for certain that they are lost? False believers are lost. What we can't know, that only God knows, is who those false believers are and who the real believers are. The Apostle John talks about this very thing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Flip to that uh, for just a moment. I'll have it up here. But there were false believers in the church back then, just like there are now. They claimed Christ. But in this situation, they had left the church. It's not just that they moved and went to another church. John is talking about people that have left the church and have left their faith. The question John is answering here is, are they still saved and have they ever been saved? John says in verse 19, they went out from, uh, from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were, that they all are not of us. John is pointing out that their actions revealed the true heart. Now, there's another sermon that we could preach right here. We'll do that at a different time. But we need to address this at least just a little bit. 
God is using the ups and downs of life to grow Christians into the image of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We see that many, 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 many times. But at the same time, God is also using the ups and downs of life to reveal false believers as well. To expose their unbelief. This is a touchy subject. The whole we always have is that non-believers will turn to Jesus in real and honest faith through the ups and downs of life. We always pray for that. And, and that true believers will constantly, constantly examine their own faith and see if they are right in their relationship with God. Or is there repentance that needs to happen? Every Sunday you hear me talk about that. Elders are down here. You could go and repent and say, hey, I need to. You don't have to tell them exactly what it is. Just say, hey, I'm repenting of this. But here's my point. If you are a fake believer in the church, it won't be easy to stay. God will eventually corner you. You will either believe and turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord, or you'll go, it's not for me. Boom. Now, at the end of this chapter, most of those talking to Jesus right now, this massive crowd will leave him. But here's the thing I want us to get to. How do we know if someone is a true disciple of Christ Jesus? And who are the false ones? Like what if you have backslidden? Like you have fallen into sin and you want to know if you were saved or not. The answer will be revealed if you repent and follow Jesus or not. You're not getting re-saved. And let me ask you a question. When you sin, do you see it as sin? Or do you just sin and you just go, I don't care, it doesn't mean anything. If you do care though, there is guilt there and you have looked on Jesus and his claim to be Christ and you believed in Christ Jesus, well then simply repent of your sin. Begin to follow Jesus once more. He's waiting for you. He's ready to walk with you again. If you're not a Christian and you don't believe, well, you've heard the gospel message. Examine Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Examine that claim that he claims to have come to earth fully God, fully man, and save the lost. Look with me one more time at John 6, verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is no game that we do here. This is real. There's nothing more important in your life than this question. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Believe and have eternal life. If this is making sense to you, if you're believing right now, even even just a tiny bit in faith, that's not you. You have been given spiritual life. It's the spark of the match right there. It's faith. Follow Jesus. Repent of your sin. Repent of not knowing Jesus before, but that now you do believe and you follow him. Spiritually dead people can't understand what we're talking about. But you do understand, don't you? Convert. Follow Jesus. Give your life over to Jesus. Begin to follow him. 
In verse 40 here, Jesus promises eternal life and one more thing. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look at that promise. He's promising that he will raise your physically dead corpse from the ground and give you a new body, real life. He's already saved you spiritually. I'm talking about the real you, your soul. But he promises to give you new life on earth. Right now, that's your soul to begin to mold you, shape you in to the person he wants you to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. To make you into the image of Christ Jesus. Now don't miss though that we are talking eternity in heaven. He is promising to raise you up physically and spiritually. Eternal life in heaven. Physical life. A new life. A body that won't desire sin. Amen? That, that won't be able to sin, that won't desire sin. A new life without tears, without pain, without suffering, without regret. Death will be gone. Notice that Jesus is not talking about raising everybody up to life on that last day. Only those that believe in him as Savior and Lord. Now don't get the wrong idea. Those that don't believe, they are raised, but not to life in Christ. For eternity. They are also given a new body. But not one that will never feel pain and regret. The new body of the damned. What they're given. In judgment. Will be able to handle this new body. Will be able to handle. Listen to me. The rigors of hell. And regret. And depression. For all eternity. They're raised to life. Given this new body, judged, sentenced to hell for all eternity because they have rejected Christ as their Savior. And even then, even then, the Bible's clear. They don't want Jesus even then. They want their own way even after they're judged. Twice in verse 39 and verse 40 here, Jesus claims to raise those that believe on the last day. He says, I will raise them. The last day is coming. The last day of the earth is coming. Maybe for you though, the last day is even before that. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just lift up those that you are calling to life right now. That they would repent and follow you. That they would convert. That you would bring their conversion to a full and complete As you just continue to pray, if you are a believer, Christ follower, if you're not a believer, look up here. If you're not sure. See, you and I are just kind of like in a prayer thing. My eyes are open. Your eyes are open. We're looking at each other. But listen to me. God is here in this place. He's speaking right now. I ask you the question, is Jesus who he claims to be, namely the Son of God? Romans chapter 10 is very clear on this. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess that with your lips, you will be saved. Will you do that?
Will you do that? Pray this prayer. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I regret that, but I understand that you took my place, Jesus, and have paid for my sins. I understand that, that you have given me your righteousness so I could be adopted as a child of God. Pray this. I want to be baptized, God. I want to show everybody in my life that I stand with Jesus, the crucified one. Then pray this. Will you help me follow? Because I don't know what I'm doing yet. Will you give me brothers and sisters in Christ? Just say this, pray this. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for showing me the love of Christ. And then end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now see, the reason you can pray that prayer is you have been given faith. You believe, and now you followed. Now here's the thing you do next. Tell somebody. After our song here in just a moment, the elders and some of their wives will be up here at the front. You can tell them. Just say, hey, I just, I just became a Christ follower. I just converted. I mean, you quite literally changed teams. And say, what do I need to do? And they can help you. They can say, here's what's next. They'll pray with you. And you remember that prayer I just said, hey, God, would you, I ask you to pray, would you give me brothers and sisters because I don't know anything? Guess what? He's already answered that prayer because we're in here, this room, with you. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.